In this first episode of two on the work of Marshall McLuhan, I'm joined by Bob Dobbs, who was Marshall McLuhan's archivist and is a renegade McLuhan scholar. In this first part on the work of McLuhan, we discuss his Manipian satire, what is meant by the medium is the message, the electric age, and more. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you would like to support the podcast and keep it going indefinitely, then please find links in the description below alongside links for our community. Enjoy. So, Bob Dobbs, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast uh, for this episode on, on McLuhan. So thanks very much for being here. Nice to meet you, James. Yeah. Um, we were joking beforehand that you are the greatest living McLuhan scholar. So I'm sort of, you know, I'm privileged. I'm honoured to be with the greatest there <laughs> there ever has been and ever will be <laughs> to talk about. And actually, it was like you were saying, you know, you're, you're certainly up there, but it's really difficult for me to find people. A lot of my viewers, uh, listeners, were saying, we, you know, can you do an episode on McLuhan? So I spent like ages trying to find people who knew a lot about him and people have used him and people have drawn on him but there wasn't many scholars and I'll, I'll admit you were you were tucked away there as well it's quite yeah. difficult to find you but for good reason i understand why that might be so um thanks for coming on and i guess before we sort of jump in on anything about McLuhan, just tell us a little bit about yourself i know you have uh, i understand you have a bit of a reputation for being quite controversial um and energetic in the McLuhan field like McLuhan <laughs> himself was and also how you first came across uh, the work of McLuhan. So um, I'll correct this the statement of greatest McLuhan scholar. Uh, a guy uh, made the website for me, and I put a lot of my documents and outlines and McLuhan articles on it. But he put greatest McLuhan scholar on there, and uh, I said, "Well, I'll leave it on there. <laughs> no big deal." Uh, but you know, it alienates the people. Uh, that are trying to be respectable and preserve McLuhan's respectability or something. Uh, and I'm not going to do that. So I don't mind that uh, I'm tagged as, you know, I was called by one uh, McLuhan professor as the Donald Trump of McLuhan studies. <laughs> when was <laughs> it? Was, what, what year? What year were you called? Uh, that, the, the year he showed up, 2016. <laughs> okay. Okay. So it wasn't like an 80s Donald Trump. It was, no. uh, it was 2016 Trump. Okay. Yeah. Once he was running for president and uh, I liked it. I thought that's pretty good. It's true. Uh, Trump. Um, yeah, he's a renegade. Uh, I'm a renegade in certain situations with certain people, but I'm very responsible. So, so right now, what I really advocate, and I'll give you the link, is a dialogue with the person I consider the present greatest McLuhan scholar, Mc, uh, Cameron McEwen. And he's a Canadian, but he lives out in California. And he is doing an incredible blog and research of history of McLuhan and the people back in Manitoba. And so uh, Cameron respects only me in the McLuhan world pretty well. He doesn't respect, respect the McLuhan industry or any of the professors. And he's on a campaign, personal intellectual campaign, to correct the record of what McLuhan did and all that. So he, he decided that he and I should have a dialogue. And we've just done 20 or 22nd episode. They're really good. Uh, we really can supplement each other. There's not anything he knows that I don't know. And uh, so his philosophy about McLuhan's quite different from me. So there is a dialogue and attention. But we're very calm and it's very nice. So 
if anybody really wants to hear two great McLuhan scholars, uh, that's what you got to listen to. And I, I, I'm complimenting Cameron on that half. He'll compliment me, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, that's the background. Now, uh, I was involved in intelligence uh, way back in Europe because I was born in Paris. And I don't want to go back into that history. There's lots of stuff on the Internet about me. So in, ni- in 1953, when Explorations Issue 1 came out, McLuhan and Ted Carpenter put out this journal. Are you aware of that magazine? Uh, no, Explorations? No, no. Yeah, it's, it was really uh, avant-garde and lead, you know cutting edge. Well, my bosses in the European intelligence world saw that he had cracked a major truism and secret in the intelligence community that the medium was the message. Mm-hmm. They knew that. Intelligence people knew this. And uh, they wanted to find out who he was. So I was sent over there for different reasons. But one of them was to go over and introduce myself, which I did in early 54. And I got to know him. And I was there to find out how he knew it. And it turned out he had been a friend of Wyndham Lewis. You know about him. He's a mm-hmm. big influence on McLuhan. And he was very controversial uh, just before World War II. He had to get out of London before the war started. He might have been affiliated with the Nazis <coughs> and the fascists. So he goes to uh, Canada and he ends up uh, in Toronto. And uh, McLuhan's down in St. Louis uh, teaching. And uh, St. Louis, Missouri, I think. And... Uh, uh, he, his mother tells him that Lewis is up there in, living in Toronto but speaking in Detroit. So McLuhan and his buddy Felix Capillary, I think the name is, run up there to meet him. This is in the summer of 43. They, McLuhan and Lewis hit it off. So McLuhan brings them down to, to St. Louis to uh, get painting commissions because he was a great British painter mm-hmm. as well as a great novelist and, and an essayist and everything. The guy was a real genius. And uh, so I find out 10 years, 11 years later, that the reason McLuhan started to know and get into what he was writing about, which was new, is that he knew and met Wyndham Lewis. And Wyndham Lewis wrote about intelligence in before World War II all the time. He was into that stuff. He was the big ogre of the Bloomsbury group. And um, so uh, the thing was, my father, <laughs> he knew Wyndham Lewis. So that was the first kind of coincidence in my life. I'm sent out to find out who this strange professor is influenced by. Turns out he's influenced by a guy that I met when I was young. So that began a whole bunch of interesting interactions with McLuhan. Uh, and about eight years later, I, I was deciding to get out of the intelligence world. I didn't get out till 1990, but I knew something was changing and intelligence in the old way, Cold War intelligence was obsolete. So I allied myself with McLuhan and promoted him. So that's how I started in the mid-60s mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. McLuhan. So, uh, so yeah, I sort of have to ask, what was he like as a person? Uh, always uh, no small talk. You, you couldn't uh, – he actually didn't tell you anything about himself. Huh. Uh, unless, unless it was relevant uh, as a, maybe a story from Cambridge about some professor – but it was always in-depth intensity because, in a way, he was a, a missionary, a religious missionary, not your traditional Catholic. But he uh, was on the mission of waking people up. He even said it in a letter to Ezra Pound in, in 1951. He said, I'm going to create a distraction on the sidelines that distracts the trigger men. 
Now, the triggermen are the CIA intelligence people. And he knew he was up against a, a George Orwellian world. But he also said, I'm going to needle the somnambulist. That's the average guy, the average person. So he's doing two things. He's going after the bureaucracy, uh, the globalists, you know. At the same time, he's uh, doing his best to talk and stimulate people that he meets all over the place. So he, he used to confront on the University of Toronto campus uh, the, uh, the Catholic. There were five, uni- uh, five colleges on the University of Toronto ca- uh, campus, all these different religions. So the Catholic one he belonged to, St. Michael's. And he would pigeonhole or whatever it is, you know, grab their lapels, or the, the, the priests, while walking around on the campus and, and say they didn't know anything about Thomism or whatever. He was a way, he was, as he said in that same letter I'm talking about, an intellectual thug. <coughs> he said that. And uh, um, he, I, I heard him say in seminars years later, he says, you're not going to meet as many dumb people in one place as in a university. I mean, he was he was really scandalous. And he even said in the 40s that he infiltrated. No, he said the artist was now in a corporate world. He said 1984 happened in 1934. So he got this uh, pretty uh, bad scene uh, for individual liberty or expression that was had its heyday in the 20s in Europe, in art, music and everything. That kind of world he didn't see could happen after World War II. So he said, I'm going to infiltrate. He called a decent society. Hmm. He, he, he got a PhD and got into academia to, to get in there and have access to young people and to needle whoever was around him uh, that he thought needed it. So he was a, mo- you know, Hemingway or uh, Picasso. They went to Paris and they go into Bohemia and try to make something in the art world. McLuhan did it differently. He went into academia to do whatever Picasso was out to do. You know what I mean? Hmm. He, was, he went in there as an artist, as a guy trying to uh, use modern media to um, alter and provide an anti-environment. So that's what you talked about with him. Hmm. And he was, he was quite open about what he was doing. Uh, you might not get it from his books, but when you met him personally... He talked seriously. He would always talk about himself and what he was doing and Wyndham Lewis or James Joyce. So he put himself into what I call the vortices. And I don't mean the British vortices were a bunch of painters in London. James Joyce, Eliot, Pound, Lewis and Yeats were the breakthrough guys around the Blast magazine in 1914, Wyndham Lewis's magazine. So the, and they all explored, they all explored the vortex and new ways and played off each other. So McClellan continued the Mortis's tradition and he felt that nobody else understood it. So he had a real sense of mission. So you didn't, <clears throat> you didn't, didn't fool around with him when you were with him. It was like being with a guru, you know, some spiritual yoga guy or something, you know, you had to be serious, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, once he got to know you, then he'd let up a bit and, and relax. But basically, uh, once you got used to him, uh, you would only go around him when you were ready for it. See, it was irritating. If you were a kind of person who liked small talk, I wasn't necessarily that kind of person. But there, uh, he wasn't a, necessarily a likable person. But damn, it didn't matter. His energy was so exciting. 
It, it was like non-human, huh. impersonal interaction. You know? Damn. You don't. Yeah, but they're they're. Uh, you don't get many of them. No, I mean, he was a genuine, incredible uh, in, intellect. Okay. I I say he's the Einstein of the second half of the 20th century because he became as well known as Einstein and, and the popular citizen in the before World War II tried to understand Einstein and there were you know talking heads who would like Bertrand Russell try to explain him everybody thought they had to understand Einstein the same thing happened to McLuhan everybody was trying to understand him and every and people made money explaining him so it's the same kind of situation uh, and Einstein was a thinker of physical reality, and McLuhan was a thinker of the new virtual reality of mass media. Okay, okay. Um, okay, before we sort of jump in on his work and dive into the, the barrage of information and media and everything, which is extremely intense generally, and you know, even in his texts, it seems McLuhan is then much like as you've described his personality. He doesn't let up, not even for a second in his text. You need right. to, you need to be uh, almost on guard when you read them. That's right. Um, but before we do that, I have to ask you the Hermetics question right at the beginning here. You can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. Who do you pick? And as we are uh, talking about a specific thinker, we can include McLuhan and add three Good. more. Three more. Okay, you got McLuhan. I'd add Frank Zappa, Linda LaRouche, <laughs> Linda LaRouche, and my personal mentor uh, from Nova Scotia, Garrett Dean, okay. who was a artist uh, theater person in New York in the thirties and forties and fifties. So, and you can, I, they're on my, you can find out about them on my website. Um, so I'm saying Marshall McLuhan, Frank Zappa, Linda LaRouche, you know who Linda LaRouche is? I've heard the name, but I'm not familiar. He was a, a radical ex-socialist, they thought he was right wing, but he wasn't. He was a thinker of politics and he ran for president every four years uh, since 1976. So he's a very controversial person. You can look him up. L.A. capital R-O-U-C-H-E, Lyndon LaRouche Jr. So you got McLuhan, LaRouche, Zappa and Garrett Dean. OK, that's who I want to. And, you know, let me tell you something. I have talked to them, not La, not LaRouche, but it was about LaRouche and his physics uh, through a medium, I've made forums. I've had McLuhan, Zappa, and uh, and Garrett Dean together talking. Okay, I mean, I've, done, Zappa, it. I've done it. I I like Zappa's work, musical work. Wait, I don't know. That sounds too formal for Zappa. You know, I like what he does musically. There you go. I'll say that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I've seen a couple of interviews with him. And, it, you know, I don't know his history too much, so it doesn't surprise me now to see from the few interviews I've seen that he was interested in McLuhan. So how did, how did that come about? It, was he, uh, was he I, studying under McLuhan or was he just in the scene? Well, a pattern I noticed is a lot of the great artists of the 60s came out of advertising. Andy Warhol, uh, probably some British guy like David Hockney, though I'm not sure, one of those uh, big artists you have over there in the pop art era. And Zappa was in advertising as a young person. So advertising uh, taught people uh, actually what the modern art form was, according to McLuhan. So uh, now am I – I'm going into Zappa? Your question was – Bring it oh, – okay. okay, well, oh, yeah, so you said you had Zappa in, in a forum. Oh, with, yeah, how did Zappa so, yeah, get into so, McLuhan? Yeah, how did Zappa get right. into uh... – uh, So through advertising, he knew a lot 
about stuff, and I don't know if he ever knew about McLuhan, uh, but what happens when I started to talk to him uh, in the 60s, uh, seriously, I knew him in the late 50s, I met him, uh, I told him about McLuhan, but not much. I just mentioned it. And then a little while later, I brought it up and he said, I read the little black book, uh, The Medium is the Massage, came out in 67. He said, I read that. And um, I then heard an interview he did with the pop magazine Hit Parader. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about the different aspects of of the music industry, about demographics. And he really seemed aware of the types and different media and music. It was McLuhan-esque, and he was only 27 years old. And uh, so he always became – he always had McLuhan lingering, but he was a, a obsessive ear guy. <laughs> he just made music. It was coming through him. And uh, later uh, he saw McLuhan being interviewed in a documentary McLuhan's daughter made around 1984 on, on American TV. And he said – so that was the first time he saw McLuhan. There's a video image. And he says, I don't think that guy was all there. <laughs> and so <laughs> I explained to him that McLuhan was, when he was on TV, he was acting. There was a detachment. He wasn't being uh, a jovial guy uh, and trying to merge with the audience or look good. He was he was planning what he said to the guy. So there'd be a bit of a, a removedness or abstraction in McLuhan's image. And I said, Frank, that's you're misinterpreting uh, the actor McLuhan, uh, and that's so he he didn't know whether that was right or not, but that was something that he uh, he, he did say about McLuhan uh, oh. when he saw him on TV. I mean, but yeah. Zappa was oh, sorry, Zappa ahead. was a force of energy like McLuhan, and uh, I don't think if Zappa and McLuhan got in the room, they they wouldn't get along. You they, know, if they. they no, too much, um, too, too much energy too, either side. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I will just say that. Okay. But I mean, thinking about it now, my favorite Zappa song, uh, "I Am the Slime," that is that is pure McLuhan, right? So, <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, no, you're right. If you were he, to, he, if you were to put all that, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I I did a great interview with Zappa, and we got a, a bit into it, a bit about McLuhan. Uh, and the history of the symbolists of the 19th century, which he didn't know anything about. He wasn't educated in in poetry and literary criticism or anything, but he certainly knew music. Um, so he would spell out some stuff, and I'd say, well, that's, you're saying the medium is the message. And he'd go, well, what does that mean? And I would tell him what I meant. I mean, he knew, he'd heard, but he wanted to hear what I'd say. And he'd go, yeah, I accept that. So he had a natural understanding of fate, what McLuhan called figure ground. You know, there's the content, and he was always talking about what was behind it. Like, he told his kids, whenever you're watching TV and you see a commercial, realize that that guy is selling that product, and he's getting paid to do it. Now, I don't know if many parents did that, probably not, but he was trying to show a structure behind the image by the content. He was showing the ground, mm-hmm. the economic ground. So, uh, so, to bring that whole room back, though... What would I mean if they could sit in a room together? Where do you think that conversation might go? Uh, McLuhan would be very detached, as he did with everybody. He would start asking about what changes did new technologies do to music in his career, uh, in the profession, which would be perfect stuff for Frank to talk about, because Frank innovated on all many levels in the history of 
electric music. And he was a, a you know a Leonardo da Vinci guy. He he did everything, and uh, so McLuhan and him would 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 uh, uh, merge match on the topic on McLuhan's interest. Uh, but if Zappa started to ask McLuhan about, well, what do you do? Uh, it wouldn't go well because McLuhan would say stuff that Zappa wouldn't understand. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't know the language and he would think he was probably uh, a little odd. So, um, and I, whenever I brought up McLuhan stuff to Zappa, and I knew him pretty good, he, he found it odd. I had to explain it to him. But then I'd, I'd sort of fit it into his what he did. And I said, you're kind of doing the same thing. It's just that you have to work with musical content. And McLuhan didn't do content. Didn't matter what the music content was. He was looking at the, the, the environmental situation that made people make that kind of music, which Zappa would say, well, what's the point of doing that? Why don't you just play music and enjoy it? You know, so that's I could go on for a long time on these topics. So. Okay. I'll stop it. Okay, we'll move. We'll move into uh, yeah. what you've mentioned a couple of times, which you know is the anyone who might not even know McLuhan will have likely heard what you've already said that the medium is the message. That's that comes from McLuhan, um, and in the the sixty four sixty three book is changed to the medium is the the massage, which was actually uh, I believe it was a typographical error which McLuhan then saw and said keep it I love it um, mass A and we don't even know if that's true oh uh, so a, a lot of, another layer yeah. of almost yeah. conspiratorial I mean, <laughs> well he would he would uh, he was a satirist but a particular kind of satirist that people don't know it's called Manipian mm-hmm. it's named after uh, a Greek of 200 BC Manipis and he was outrageous because he would mix poetry with prose you didn't do that back then. They, they were just beginning to be writers, and so they're really uh, picky about how you did it. And so he would mix media. And ever since then, there have been great writers who mix media, and the ultimate book of that was Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce, and McLuhan uh, spent his life translating Finnegan's Wake, and McLuhan himself said he was a manipulative satirist. So what a manipulative satirist does, they don't satirize political people mm-hmm. or uh, – uh, social manners and mores, they satirize the user of the medium that the artist is using. So McLuhan satirized his readers. Hmm. He guts you to look at the process of reading while you're reading. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking to have a story and just be entertained, you're not going to like McLuhan. He's going to be very irritated because he keeps reminding you, hey, buddy, you're reading a book and this is altering you. And the person would say, maybe even Zapp would say, well, I don't care if it's altering me. Uh, I want you to listen to this great music I came up with. So uh, uh, that's where McLuhan was uh, very different as a writer. And because people weren't aware of that kind of writer, nobody understood him when he first came out. Now people understand him real easily. Uh, they might not understand how he's satirizing them, but people – the word media, he basically invented. It was it was a word from advertising that nobody knew outside of the industry. And then he says, understanding media, people, they didn't know what media was. Maybe the news, you know. They thought, oh, this guy is telling me to understand uh, Walter Cronkite or uh, Piers Morgan or something, you know, over there in England. Uh, the, the word media, and then to find out that the word media applied to everything that humans made, all artifacts – that, that was too big for people. Mm-hmm. So so the book became Understanding Everything, <laughs> The Extensions of Man. 
you know, if you if you stayed around long enough to even know this and find mm. out about it. Mm. So that's so, so that's really a good example of the the meaning of that that phrase there. The medium the medium is the message is you know what he's doing there is saying what's in the song doesn't matter what's what's on the page doesn't matter what is this medium altering in terms of your day to day apprehension of society the world? yeah you yeah. you and your society and what's it doing to other media what's it doing to education what's it doing to business uh how uh the military uh, changes uh, i just want to say to get the dates right he 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 did a major book in 62 called the gutenberg galaxy mm-hmm. and then he did part 2 was understanding media in 64 and then in 67, the medium is the okay. massage paperback came out. And that was the year he was like the most popular, most visible. They they had did a TV special in the States on him. And so a lot of people heard the phrase, the medium is the massage. Uh, and that's why I say that he was kind of like Einstein. A lot of people heard about Einstein first half of the 20th century because he was a, a newsworthy figure, an odd person. And uh, so – Everybody thought they had to figure out what it meant. E equals MC squared. The same thing happened to McLuhan. He was popularized before anybody read him. He was part of the language in the 60s, very influential in many ways. And so the, the, the average person was uh, pressured to say what they what was the global village and what was the mediumism massage meaning. So like Einstein, he was a great mind, but was stuck into the culture beyond their discipline, beyond their specialties. Okay. Okay. I mean, even though that 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 saying sort of goes across all mediums, do you, what do you think McLuhan would make of? You know, reading is a relatively slow medium, and then the introduction of TV is this passive, relatively fast-paced medium. But some new forms of medium, especially social media, uh, you know, sort of instant images, just constant all day. What do you think he'd make of the the sort of acceleration of of in terms of our decreased attention span in relation to 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 mediums? It would confirm his interest. He picked Finnegan's Wake to translate. Now, Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce came out in 1939, uh, has about 60 languages on each page. You cannot read it. It's not a book to be read. But you can you can look at forms of communication that are referred to in the book. I call your attention to page 52, where he has this phrase, television kills telephony and brothers broil. The eyes demand that no, uh, yeah. The eyes demand their uh, television kills telephony brothers broil. Uh, the eyes demand their turn. Let them be seen. And there might have been another phrase in there. So how do you get the eyes to be seen if telephone and oral electric media are swamping books? And it's a it's not a dominant medium for people if they're living telephones all day long. And then television comes in and alters telephones. The book, the eye, gets lost. So the eyes demand their turn. Let them be. Let them be seen. So McLuhan took those words, television, and and talked about them as environments. And the whole media study is how you talk about uh, Finnegan's Wake. In other words, the content ain't as important as the message and massage of Finnegan's Wake which is a collage, and the simplest way to understand it is that James Joyce was going up and down the shortwave radio in Paris in his apartment in the 20s, and he said, wow, I can hear uh, you know, Dublin, I hear Germany, I can hear all these different places, and I vowed never to go back to Dublin. I can listen to him all day long and be there, so to speak, 
And, and so he wanted to figure out what that meant for art, what it meant to be a communicator. And so he took on the new electric world and McClune picked that up uh, from Joyce. And so he proceeded to translate Finnegan's Wake. And if you look at Finnegan's Wake today, it looks exactly like our texting world. Mm-hmm. It's a collage of conversation and, and back and forth all through the whole book. It's, it's like if you took all your emails and texts out of your uh, phone and dumped them on the desk. They'd be scrambled there mm-hmm. if they were in that form of matter. That's a page of Finney's Wake. So McClone picked the right book that was the most prophetic about where we are today. So that was a lucky thing that he did to find that book. So in terms of that sort of, you know, as you say, with text messaging and the example of Finnegan's Wake, just these small bits just constantly coming in, yeah. almost like an increased fragmentation. For McLuhan, yeah. could that ever reach a certain extent of fragmentation where we just wouldn't even be able to apprehend anymore? You know, everything's so utterly dispersed, we can't even approach it. And what, what happens What happens to, to man then? Well, you could take Rupert Sheldrake, Terrence McKenna, all kinds of different thinkers. They're all uh, tackling the same problem McLuhan got to first, <laughs> at least in public. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you could you can see uh, Terrence McKenna. I don't know if you know about him, but he said endless novelty will lead to a 2012 collective epiphany, and we blip into some level. Uh, and that may have happened, but <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> it's hard to know it. So you go back to McLuhan, and he was touching on all these different um, inspired ideas that showed up later, and he basically said. No philosopher king, the wisest person in the world, probably even the second coming, could not stop what, what, what the media was doing to us. So he said we have to, as responsible citizens, turn off TV, which was the latest medium in the 50s, 60s, and take a six-month fast and, and look at what is this thing going to do to us? What is it doing to us? Of course, the society wouldn't do that. They didn't. So he was forced to uh, pray a lot. He went to mass every day because he knew the chaos factor was really bad. Anything could trigger off anything. Uh, And uh, he also uh, was very cynical and playful and satirical in his public communication. But if you if suddenly someone and, you know, the Vatican called him up, they named him an advisor to their communication committee. They never asked him. They named him. They never Hmm. called him up and asked him for anything. That was about 1973. He was he was assigned to other United Nations committees and different things, but nobody did what he wanted them to do, which was to take to take the the community and agree that just as he showed in his books, print altered the world, and then uh, newspapers did, and then radio and TV. He always said every new medium creates new created new war, so we're going to have a new war here. It's an information war right now, but it could flip into a, a crazy new war uh, which we can't handle. So McLuhan said he, he was talking about us being post-human before anybody really talked about it. He said that George Orwell, which is a pretty bad scenario, happened in 1900. Another time he said it happened in 1934. So he really thought that humans had merged with technology by 1950 and were cyborg before there was the word cyborg. Mm-hmm. And he certainly uh, thought we were doomed. That's why he said he's neither an optimist or a pessimist, but an apocalyptic. He said, we, ha- we are being altered so dramatically that you can only have an apocalyptic response to an apocalyptic situation, so to speak. So he was, he, he was uh, scared shitless of what so, was happening. So there wasn't a, 
you know, as he says, he's not an optimist or a pessimist, but a, an apocalypticist or whatever. Yeah. The, then there wasn't a possibility for a reversion out of this state for him. You know, once, even though he said, let's turn off our TVs for six months, if he's not an optimist, then surely there, wa- there wasn't a way we could go, right, you know, like we can deprogram what's been programmed. Well, that's, he said that's, that's where he was a, a saint of the church. He felt that you had to become uh, inspired by the message of Jesus or whatever it is to become a Christian. <clears throat> Back in the 30s, he asked for sign. He was an intellectual, read, read some Catholic philosophers. He, said he didn't know whether there was anything to this, so he asked for some signs from God, and he claims he got them. And his son said his father never told him what the signs were, but he claimed he got signs. So he full head went into being a Catholic, and he would occasionally, not too much, uh, because he was talking to a public that was generally pagan. And uh, uh, so he didn't bring in his religious points to confuse people. So uh, every now and then he might say something. Or if he, if you met a, he met a priest who interviewed him, and it was fairly literate about McLuhan's ideas, he'd do, a, he'd do an interview. And there was a guy who did that. There was a collection of, of uh, McLuhan talking about religion and his faith well after he had died, but that stuff wasn't out when he was alive. So he believed that he was a member of the true church. Now, what the true church was wasn't the, the bureaucracy of the Vatican. So he had a individualistic, eccentric, uh, whatever, uh, uh, religious conversion. He felt that was salvation, but he didn't believe you, could, you had to go around and beat people over the head and, and make them convert. Now, uh, a longtime colleague, Barry Nevitt, told me Eventually, when he became a real close friend and did a couple of books of McLuhan, he'd start to say, he said to Barry, Barry, why aren't you a Catholic? <laughs> you know, uh, you obviously see how bad the world is in this situation. How come you're not trying to save yourself? So uh, so he felt that that would happen. But at the same time, in interviews with Priestnet, he said, you can't be a Christian today because the whole basis of Christianity was the phonetic alphabet and then later the printing press. And that would uh, melt and fall away. So the electric age would demand a different kind of religion, a Christian. But then he would flip and say that because Christianity was the only religion that emphasized the body, you know, it wasn't Buddhism, Hinduism, going to Nirvana or some other transcendent state, that the body was the most important situation, that you would get salvation uh, within your body while you're alive. He said... We're in a disembodied, discarnate electric environment. Mm-hmm. So a religion that talked about the body as opposed to the environment was the most relevant religion, hmm. even though it was being undermined by the electric environment. So that's sort of what he meant by uh, us becoming androids is in that sense of um, the effects from the media alter our mentality so much that we're drawn away from any any human factories. We're just simply working on some... Uh, artificial level of machinic sort of just going from one artificial creation to the next. Yeah. You take the word machinic, that's Deleuze and Guattari. (laughs) Uh, We didn't, we didn't have that term in McLuhan's day, but he was describing the machinic and Deleuze and Guattari probably got the idea of the machine as opposed to mechanical uh, from McLuhan, from whatever they picked up in McLuhan. I wrote a long essay showing all the postmodernists, uh, I would take quotes from their books and show how McLuhan already said what they were saying before they did. Um, so uh, 
so McLuhan said the environment would not encourage Christianity because it would be post-literate. Uh, the population would become pagan and obsessed with the occult, the occult and all that happened. He predicted everything that happened. And, and the TV evangelists would not be uh, a kind of religious um, institution that he supported uh, because they were just people on TV communicating on a medium that undermined Christianity, mm -hmm. you know. So he was devoted to literature and the book that way, that he thought the book, if you get people reading a book and the best book to get them to tackle is Finnegan's Wake because you can't put it away and claim you finished it. So it's a book that's a perpetual motion machine. You're always going to have to keep reading it to figure it out. So he thought Finnegan's Wake was a, a panacea for getting young people to uh, to read. And he said many students, when they looked at Finnegan's Wake, they said, oh, that reminds me of my LSD trip. Hmm. And so he, he said, yeah, this is like LSD, but it's probably safer. Uh, not so disruptive to your daily life as LSD. So he considered that an anti-environment, an anti-environment to uh, the Tim Leary world. And remember, he inspired Leary through a consultation to come up with turn on, tune in, drop out. Leary got that from McLuhan. So here's McLuhan influencing people, inspiring them, and they had no clue how different McLuhan was from them mm -hmm. and didn't agree with anything that they were doing on a personal level, but he, but he was very impersonal. That was the point. He kept it on the public language. You know that phrase, lingua franca? It's sort of like the, the public shared environment of communication. He talked to that, not to individual people. He didn't judge people uh, or societies for, um, uh, no, he, he would judge societies, but he noticed they had a bias, so it was hard for them, for them to see what was happening in other societies. But he never blamed individuals for the situation. Uh, you know, like you're an idiot uh, because uh, you, you don't understand the environment. He knew that it was so overwhelming, especially in the 20th century, that uh, people were helpless. So he he wasn't a moralist like Norman Mailer. Norman Mailer would call everybody a dummy and mm -hmm. and have debates with McLuhan, public debates, and criticize McLuhan for not being a moralist. And McLuhan refused to be a moralist. He was privately, as a Catholic, I, I have copies of his, uh, one of his daughter's letters in which he was getting a divorce. McLuhan was writing to her, very un-McLuhan-like. He was telling her, don't get divorced. It's not good. Nuclear war is going to break out any day. You don't want to be alone. <laughs> he was trying to scare the shit out of her. <laughs> so he took, you know, marriage very seriously, privately. But he would... He would talk in public about, oh, the kids will sleep around. They're tribal, they're oral. They don't have bourgeois literate values. You know. and, and a lot of middle class mothers thought he was pretty outrageous talking that way in public. You know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm just interested, were there any sort of postmodernists of, of the, you know, you mentioned Deleuze and Guattari and I imagine Baudrillard as well. Was there any, were there any who sort of did acknowledge his influence? Uh, they all were uh, they had to acknowledge him. But what's interesting is uh, Roland Barth mm -hmm. and uh, Derrida were subscribers to McLuhan's Explorations Journal in the 50s. They knew about McLuhan if they read the journal closely enough because there were other writers. But they could have become aware of McLuhan quite early. And uh, then in, the, in uh, 1967, when there was this uh, World's Fair in Montreal, Canada, Montreal, Quebec, Mm -hmm. uh, in the French-Canadian part of Canada, 
Um, <clears throat> because Quebec had a very deep involvement with French intellectuals in Paris, and McLuhan was the theme of the, of the uh, World's Fair, there were McLuhan quotes posted all over it. Um, and McLuhan's book, 1967, Meeting Massage, was out. McLuhan was in the air. And Ulysses was translated that year into French. So Derrida and these people who were interested in Joyce, uh, they started to read uh, Ulysses, and they're looking around for commentary and some English writers. Uh, and so McLuhan was in the air, in the media, quoting Joyce. So they all became aware of, jo of McLuhan in that year. And they all, Bojard started writing about McLuhan uh, right away, 67, 68. And a lot, Virilio uh, met McLuhan a few years later, uh, Deleuze and Guattari. Now, Derrida, uh, I, don't, I don't know if Deleuze and Guattari mentioned McLuhan, but the way they talk about stuff, it seems McLuhan is, at least Deleuze's influence. I imagine but, this pro in Capitalism and Schizophrenia, I imagine you could probably find some reference. There's so much reference okay. in that book. I'd have thought so. All right. So Derrida in 1971 did a talk in, in North America someplace, and he specifically attacked McLuhan, who said that orality happened before writing. Mm -hmm. And uh, orality is like before. It's the beginning or something. Whereas Derrida says, no, no, writing happened before speech. But then it became a, a manipian. Uh, McLuhan called Derrida. He read Derrida. He said, he said Derrida is a, a, a manipian satirist of academia. But, you know, what, it, what does Derrida mean by text and writing and all that stuff? He had some peculiar ideas about it. Probably uh, uh, writing as a medium. But he said writing was there before speech. So he took the exact opposite line on media studies from McLuhan. And probably did it on purpose because you can't do McLuhan. McLuhan locked that down, so you had to be a contrarian. Okay. Okay. And that is said in '71 in a public lecture. He he criticized McLuhan for those very reasons. Okay, so in this sort of chaos that McLuhan has brought out from society, from the you know the the, the 1900 or 1934 arrival of of in quotation marks media, whatever that encompasses, which is a ever, electric media, electric media, which is an ever growing yeah. thing and expanding yeah. and accelerating thing. Was his concern to that, that, you know, there were, there, there was something that this was covering up, that there was something this was ruining or, or disrupting. Oh, yeah. So what was it? Was that truth? Was that the human or was it something else? And, and, you know, did he eventually just sort of, just seek just to analyze the problem or was he still always trying to you know seek answers to a question what is the what is the problem so he, here for from McLuhan he did have an answer and, and when he got interviewed in Playboy magazine and well it came out in March 69 um, but it was probably done in 68 you know as an intellectual in America you got to have a solution you can't mm -hmm. just be a complainer so you got to have a ready-made solution so his ready-made solution was we would take the computer and sort of take a position in the United Nations and take in data from all over the world about what was happening to society. So you'd be, you'd be a news agency, but you'd be looking at, okay, Venezuela is uh, having lots of riots. We should turn off their radio and have them just read newspapers so they calm down, all right? And, and so you would have to study the sensory bias of each population and then what the different media did to you did to them, and as new media came in or older media were obsolesced, 
you would study these things and he made models and tried to do it. It didn't work, but he, but he sounded pretty articulate. He said, if we can manage economies, we don't say that uh, uh, freedom of uh, whatever, economic trade and everybody just do whatever they want, that, the libertarian view, we accept the programming through the Federal Reserve and central banks of the economy and, and different uh, wage and price controls and this and that. If we accept that in the economy, which he said was visual space and a product of writing and the printing press, the dollar was visual, then we should be accept the management of newer environments that go around money and cause inflation and cause depressions. So let's modulate these large environments and don't consider them a threat to our individual freedom. Accept the management of these. And Wyndham Lewis wrote a book in 1926 called The Art of Being Ruled. And McLuhan said that was as important a document as Machiavelli 400 years earlier. Machiavelli was a big influence, but the 20th century was different. And so Lewis came up with a new way to be a citizen and how to manage society. And it said the art of being ruled. Not many people want to consider themselves being ruled, but anyways, the uh, uh, the the impersonal management of society was required by media, and McLuhan presented a very technical, computer programmed uh, solution, which no one took seriously. So he almost wanted to use media against itself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's where he came up with the phrase "media ecology." He said, "We uh, people are having media clash." with their particular qualities and cancel each other out. If we if we stop TV for a while, then we could really use movies or radio and understand the medium and see what it's doing to us and how it's affecting older meter like uh, media like uh, speech and print. So you you would save print by turning off the electric media a little bit. And then he didn't think print was a perfect effect if you had too much print like the Victorian society in England had, and they became quite distorted in the 19th century, uh, if you brought back radio or TV to counter the effects of print, you'd have a restored balanced sensorium. Okay, okay. I mean, that's just, pretty... Just you see how... Yeah, what yeah. I'm saying... Yeah, it's like what an, I'm an saying, equilibrium. That's right. But what I'm saying, you never heard, right? Here's McClellan mm-hmm. presenting these complex ideas that all people know about. Oh, some guy said... The media is the message. They wouldn't even say it right. You know, they say the media, <laughs> uh, which meant the news. So uh, that's what I like. I've all, I've been on talk shows since the 80s. I mean, had my own shows on the radio. I can get anybody worked up or be an interesting show just by quoting McLuhan and talking McLuhan in a way that they never heard of. Okay, I mean, just now you're going to be play, devil's yeah, advocate. Yeah, I was going to play devil's yeah. advocate. The Beelzebub's advocate. Yeah, yeah, Beelzebub's advocate. Okay. <laughs> Lucifer, Lucifer's, whichever, whichever one you want. Um, yeah. I mean, let's take like the the big era. Let's take the Zappa, Zappa. Let's go back to Zappa. Zappa's era of TV, right? TV was the thing, right? You know, you sit in too close, it'll melt your brain, <laughs> or you know, like your brain will come out your ears. I remember those old yeah. warnings, and yeah. everyone was absolutely enamored and just, just reverential of tv that was the the medium of that time yeah if we applied McLuhan's idea to that decade and just turned off all the tv because there's there's too much stimulation we need to revert back what's to stop the population just revolting because they've become you know they've become so um, they did 
Like, it, you know, the equivalent no, no, now let, of saying, let, right, we're going to do an EMP and it destroys every smartphone, right? right. Surely the be Let the me medium, tell you, I have an answer. Just, I'll just say one more thing, though. The medium, surely the medium would have changed our psyche so much that doing so would almost be like a... It would be like a, an era of mourning, you know, as like a death. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, he had all kinds of good answers for that. Okay. First of all, there were actual small towns, small areas that did a study mm-hmm. in the 70s. And they would turn off TV in their community for uh, a week or two. The population went nuts. <laughs> they, just like the lockdown, you know, they're all trapped at home. But they couldn't leave their space uh, through television's window. And so they got all neurotic, alcoholic, violence, divorces. <laughs> it was bad. But but, but it, McClude said, see what we're doing? We're addicted to this thing. And if we're going to sit around complaining about the kids are getting dumber with television, uh, that's pretty immature as a parent. You're complaining uh, about something that everybody is addicted to or being changed. And we better approach this a bit more seriously. Let's all agree that we take a, uh, a fast and it's like a big effort. We know there's dangers and, and uh, you know, psychiatrists will be overworked or whatever. <laughs> the thing is, he knew that every medium was valuable. So he didn't do it to get rid of TV forever, only to wake us up by it not being there to see what it had done to us and then slowly turn it back on in a more balanced way. But the problem is, uh, as Bucky Fuller found out, if you have a good idea, People are crazy. They got personal obsessions. They got all these things they want to do. You can't. It's like you're trying to organize nine cats, right? You just can't organize people uh, that way unless you're a Hitler or something and you just come in and shoot them up. But uh, so McClure w- was asking the impossible, but it was the most revealing uh, analysis of what was going on that other intellectuals were avoiding. They weren't seeing what TV was doing. They even didn't even understand what he meant. Because they were so content obsessed, they didn't know what the form was, and and how it was altering our senses. So uh, that's why he had a long life as an intellectual, and is still talked about today mm-hmm. uh, more than Orwell or other people probably, because he hit on the core problem, and it also his his uh, laws of media, the rules of what media environments do, I think it's the best knowledge for a citizen to know. Of all the sociology and psychology that people have developed the last couple hundred years, his is the most practical for the citizens. And certainly, uh, let's say 20 years ago, if people had been educated before that in high school or college, they might not have been so keen to get a computer or a cell phone for their kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might have, And they might have had a good collective social community reaction. No, we're not letting this thing destroy our society because it will do that uh, as much as uh, what we think is good about it. And because nobody, and, and I'd say that is the most practical response to political responsibility, uh, citizens' responsibilities, beside, uh, more important than whether you're a capitalist, communist, Republican, or a libertarian, or these old categories that we all know don't apply to really what's going on, which is a media society, so that brings us back to McLuhan mm-hmm. and the laws of media. Mm-hmm. So he came up with those practical information for psychic survival personally and uh, probably for the community. Okay, okay. I mean, I, I have a big big question here. Let's say we go back way before the electric process, back to when the, the average person would have a little plot of land. They would probably farm for the next five generations, not seeing more than 500 people in their life. 
And from history, we know, yeah, there was a bit of misery. There were probably diseases, blah, blah, blah. But these people were perfectly content. They were perfectly happy because that was their lot in life. And, you know, they, it seems that they didn't really need have this need, almost a McLuhan need, to escape. And the electric process comes along in 1900, 1934, accelerates and gets worse and worse and worse. And as you say, you turn off these TVs and the lockdown is a good example of when you're, something is taken away out of the electric process that you're used to, you go a bit nuts. What <laughs> is it, you know, as you said, that I liked your metaphor there, that the TV allows you to get out of your house yeah mentally i guess right yeah what is it yeah. that, what is it since the electric process that we're all trying to escape from that we're not comfortable with sitting in right okay so what is uncomfortable about the electric environment no 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 so there's a you know we we keep we we constantly use all these the 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 mediums of the electric process what is it why why do we feel compelled to use these what is it that, ah. that we don't want to like you know what is it that we're escaping from by using these. Okay, so that was McLuhan's real discovery. In understanding media, he says, uh, the idea that media alter us, uh, most people couldn't get it if they paid attention to an explanation of it, and and previous thinkers had talked about it, uh, not in the sophisticated way McLuhan did. But he said, what he discovered is that when you extend a new medium, it's it numbs your senses. So when we had the book, it numbed the eye, made you unconsciously visually biased, and altered your other senses. And he said, this numbness, why did, wouldn't people look into it? So he discovered that people ignored the numbness. And he said, that was my discovery. And he even called it original sin. He said the original sin was uh, uh, the lack of interest in finding out what's going on. So you're numb. So the sensory interaction that media caused led to a numbness and like weather, I go out there, I'm in Maui, I'm in paradise, right? I enjoy the sun and, and wonderful weather every day and I want it every day. McLuhan considered our inventions and their environments as man-made nature, a man-made weather. And just as much as you want to engage your senses and naturally, you also want to engage the senses, the extensions of them. That's why we're, quote, addicted. I'm not addicted to sunlight. It's, it, it's something that I enjoy. We all appreciate. Well, we have to look at television as a new kind of sensory existence without mm -hmm. the hysteria pro or con about it. But because people have such hectic lives, because the computer speeded it up even more, and nobody can think straight about uh, the issues, and, yeah, they might want to ban TV. There was a book written back in the day, Four arguments for the elimination of television. That's a stupid proposition because you won't, you're not going to eliminate the weather. And that's why McLuhan called it hot and cool, hot and cold. Mm. Uh, so people are not addicted to media if you understand their extensions of our senses. And like we use our senses, we're going to use the media. So basically, McLuhan said people turn on the media every morning uh, to find out what's going on not on the content, but to share that electric space that everybody else was in. So it was like jumping into the pool every day, in the swimming pool. And you swim around and you pick different content to focus on, but you knew it was an environment, a weather, uh, a situation that everybody uh, had to explore so that you were up to date with what the community was going through. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a sensory pressure. We made new senses with these technologies. 
And that's where it sort of comes back in with the, the religious impulse for McLuhan in that by doing that, we're avoiding that Christian connection yeah. with the body. Yeah, well, you know, the Christian thing is I'm in the world but not of it. It's very hard as your senses are extended to say I'm in the TV world but not of it. It's very hard <laughs> to be detached. In a simpler world, you could. Uh, if it was a manuscript world, you go become a monk. You know, you could drop out. So the the endless pressure of involvement, which McLuhan always talked about, was the big disservice of the new century media. But he wasn't saying it was evil. He was saying we have added, we're cyborgs, we've added new bodies to ourselves, and uh, we've got to recognize what it's doing to people. Mm-hmm. Did he ever, because obviously he's sort of primarily dealing with the senses, so, but also primarily dealing with you know, the hierarchy of the senses. You have sight, then you have hearing. And then usually, you know, taste and touch are rarely spoken about in philosophy or theory. Did he ever mention these senses as being sort of caught up in that electric process at all? Oh, yeah, he talked about every sense and, and their extensions. I don't understand your question. Yeah, if, you know, he, he discussed every sense and what, and what extended it mm-hmm. and then the interplay of it. And a sense that he talked about that people didn't get was tactility. Because his definition of tactility, or which people think is touch, is it's not a sense. It's the interplay of all the senses. In other words, maybe what makes consciousness. You could say it's the mind. The mind organizes our sensory data. So tactility, the interplay of the sensory life, he said electricity was an extension of that. Not a particular sense, but of the interplay of the senses. So that uh, you had to get, or you wouldn't understand what he was talking about. When he when he talked about the tactile. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. So okay. here's here's the oh, here's the thing, James. I, mm-hmm. I got to do something for an hour. Can we stop and continue an hour? Could you? I mean, I think I've just got one sort of quick question, and then okay. we could sort of finish it up. I mean, the the question I really want to ask is, and I'm sure you'll be sort of sympathetic. Is is, is why why is McLuhan um, forgotten? You know, why has he been a bit ignored? And I know you're, yourself as a controversial. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I distracted every vein. Yeah. I, I distracted everybody from him. <laughs> <laughs> no, what happened is, and he predicted it, people became media. More and more people, more instant celebrities, more information. Why would anybody listen? Once you have cable TV and all that, listen to one guy who you don't understand and he's boring, probably he's a professor. He had no charisma to keep going. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like a Hugh Hefner or something. Uh, so he just got swamped by uh, uh, the world he saw coming, which was there would be a lot of people imitating him and becoming talking heads. He was unique. Uh, you know, the talking head back then in the 50s, I remember it was Bertrand Russell and, and a couple other guys, like all those hucks, just a few people. Mm-hmm. And they would give an hour and this wisdom would come out of them. And uh, so McClure was the first guy like that who engaged with silly topics like rock and roll and and uh, frisbees and, and, and teenage culture. Aldous Huxley did not talk about uh, doo-wop, you know what I mean? Okay. But McLuhan talked about that. So he was different, and mm-hmm. so he got, he got noticed. But soon after, you had endless talk shows with, you know, 10 people on it in an hour and a half on a Johnny Carson show or something. He just got lost in the mix. That's why he said nobody could actually 
come on and be so profound and stop the world. No philosopher king could stop the world. So we had to collectively understand what was happening and collectively decide to turn it off to get a breather. And then listen to maybe some more intelligent people than your average person on a talk show. So that's why the and McLuhan was right. He knew he was he was uh, lucky to get the the attention he got, as short as it was. Okay, okay, that's a good answer. Um, yeah, okay. If you've got things to do, I think that's a good place to finish up. And uh, I won't be able to do. I'd like it. to continue. Yeah, I can we be... continue? Uh, well, not now, today. Uh, yeah, no, not we can today. do it. We could do another part. Yeah, 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 definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah. But yeah, thanks, thanks for coming on. Yeah, well, thanks for having good, uh, you know, responses and interest and basically uh, being clued in about what 